Welcome to SLU Law Summations, presenting brief looks at legal matters that matter to you by St. Louis University School of Law, located in the heart of downtown St. Louis. The Republic of Ireland has once again found itself at the center of the Brexit debate as recent proposals put the long-standing border dispute front and center. While residents worry about trade and conflicts, the deadline looms. I'm Maria Tsikalis. And I'm Jessica Sacconi. Today we are joined by former U.S. Ambassador Kevin O'Malley. Ambassador O'Malley recently joined the faculty of SLU Law as a professor of practice and ambassador in residence. He served as a U.S. ambassador to Ireland from 2014 to 2017 and worked hard to strengthen the, the important ties between U.S. and Ireland. Thank you for joining us today, Ambassador. My pleasure. First, for someone who spent their career as a successful trial, trial lawyer, how did you find yourself in Phoenix Park serving as the UN, U.S. ambassador to Ireland? So it was quite a career change for me. Um, I'd say. <laughs> not, not, to make it, uh, not to make a political statement, but just to tell you the facts of how it mm -hmm. all happened, is, um, is as follows. Uh, I became very involved uh, at a very early stage in the election campaign of a senator by the name of Barack Obama. Uh, I thought that he was, and still think that he is, um, uh, a, a great leader. And so I worked on his campaign as a volunteer uh, from the very beginning of the campaign in, in Iowa and then uh, through the other early primary states and Super Tuesday and uh, the primary in Missouri and eventually he got the nomination and eventually he won. Um, and quite frankly, I thought that was the end of it. I was pretty uh -huh. happy that I got what I wanted, which was, um, uh, an inspirational um, president. So the, um, but the con there were conversations uh, later about would I like to join the administration, and um, we talked about that. I, I, I don't know how ready I was at the time. I had not, I had a nice practice, and I wanted to um, transition that in a, um, in an orderly fashion. And uh, so that, that took a while. And in the meantime, we had another uh, election and, and the president was reelected and then the, the conversations really heated up uh, a little bit more substantively than that. As it, as it our State Department works uh, this way, that 70% uh, of uh, American ambassadors to foreign countries are career foreign service officers. They go to university somewhere, they take the foreign service exam, they get accepted into the State Department, they begin a career where they're every three or four years they're going from one embassy to the other or back to Washington at the State Department then back overseas to another embassy and they matriculate up and uh, a small portion of them will be eventually nominated uh, through the State Department to become uh, ambassadors. About 30 percent of our ambassadors or people like me who had careers outside the State Department, as you pointed out, mm -hmm. Jessica, I was a, I'm a SLU graduate of mm -hmm. undergrad and the law school, and I was a trial lawyer for a long time and was not looking to become, I never thought I was gonna end my career uh, in, in Ireland. But uh, as I said, 30% of our ambassadors come through the non-career uh, role and they are people that the president uh, either knows or um, 
is familiar with, mm -hmm. and then and then asked to to take on one of these roles. Generally, the non-career ambassadors have uh, roles which are a little glitzier than the career ambassadors. The the non-career mm -hmm. ambassadors have positions like Ireland, um, the Vatican, um, France, the UK, um, Japan, Germany. The career ambassadors um, have, I would say, in many ways more difficult and certainly more dangerous assignments mm -hmm. in places like Yemen and Sudan and um, Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. um, so. Anyway, the, uh, as, it, as it turned out, the president asked me if I would uh, be his ambassador to Ireland. As an Irish-American with um, grandparents who emigrated from Ireland and aunts and uncles who, grad who emigrated from Ireland, uh, this was a really a great opportunity. And um, I don't recall taking a whole lot of time telling him I would be very happy <laughs> to do that. <laughs> what uh, county is your family from? I am from, uh, my family is from County Mayo. Okay and from the city of Westport. Mm. And I had a, an opportunity um, to get there many times uh, during my tenure as ambassador. Mm -hmm. I'd been there before, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, they certainly uh, treated me very, very well every time, <laughs> I, every time I showed up. I imagine the Irish hospitality. Yeah, they're pretty good at that. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of which, the U.S. and Ireland have generally had strong relations together. Why do you think that relationship is so important? Um, it's, imp it's important for several reasons. Let me, let me point out why it, why it is so different than mm -hmm. our relationship with other countries and then go into, the, into the, its importance. Um, there are about, um, there, are, there are about 30 million Americans who claim Irish ancestry of some degree or another. Um, and it, People, Irish Americans, are proud of that. They, mm -hmm. It's something that they, they they just don't tear out on St. Patrick's Day. This mm -hmm. is something when you talk to people like me who are who are Irish Americans, or people like me who have Irish American, I mean Irish sounding names. Um, you know, it's something that that we um, are happy about. Mm -hmm. And so you've got that on this side of the ocean. On on in Ireland. Um, it's hard to meet someone in the Republic of Ireland that doesn't have a relative here in the United States. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that relative emigrated generally for financial reasons that, you know, they're having a tough time in Ireland. Now, you know, not so much now because the, the Irish economy is, is doing so well, but, but um, it, it's hard to find somebody who doesn't have, it's hard to find anybody in Ireland who doesn't have a cousin, a brother, uh, a daughter, a son, who, who came to the United States and prospered. So, the relationship is very familial. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's it, and it's different than our relationship with almost any other country. People people in Ireland are leaning towards America. They 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 talk about the United States sometimes as the next parish over. Um, <laughs> they they talk they're they're they follow American politics um, passionately. Um, mm -hmm. I would say maybe obsessively, um, <laughs> and 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 in in America we've always just on the other side. Back, going back to this side of the ocean, we've always had this this feeling of Ireland that's a positive one. So you've got both people leaning towards one another. 
That meant in the early days, for my, my grandparents emigrated here in 1910, and um, even in those days, past the, you know, long past the Irish uh, famine, um, people, uh, the Irish immigrants would send money back uh, to their relatives in, in Ireland. And that was really the extent of the commercial relationship between the United States mm -hmm. and Ireland, is mm -hmm. that the immigrants were sending a few spare dollars back to the homeland. Well, in, in the 60s, Ireland decided to uh, uh, abandon its agrarian protectionist uh, economic policies and really begin to look outside of its borders. And they found a welcome partner in the United States. And that, that economic relationship has blossomed um, into a huge commercial relationship mm -hmm. now. What, what used to be a few Irish immigrants sending a few bucks back to Ireland uh, is now 700 uh, big American corporations resident in Ireland, um, creating you know 100,000 jobs in Ireland, creating lots of wealth mm -hmm. in the United States and in Ireland. We we use Ireland as our stepping off point for the world's biggest market, the European Union. So rather than having um, a company try to run its European operations from, say, the Silicon Valley or from New York or Chicago or St. Louis. These, Irish, these, these American companies have moved to Ireland um, and use that as their way to approach the European Union, which is a market of 550 mm -hmm. million mm -hmm. consumers. Um, and it's worked out very, very well for us because Ireland has a huge... Um, well-established firm educational system so that the Irish are, are, are very well educated. Obviously Ireland is an English-speaking country and soon um, after Brexit will be the only English-speaking country in the European Union. Um, Ireland has a, a low corporate tax rate of 12.5 percent mm -hmm. Um, which is um, low, obviously, but it's also transparent and it's uh, sort of gimmick-free. Mm -hmm. There are no loss carry forwards. There are no. There, it's a, just a straight flat, twelve point five percent tax. Um, but mostly, this business relationship has worked well, as as I have said many times before, is because the Irish and the Americans simply just get one another. Mm -hmm. We like dealing with the Irish. They like dealing with <laughs> us. So. So these companies, although you'll hear the argument made that, that these American companies in Ireland simply because of the tax, the low ta corporate yeah, tax Yeah, I've rate. heard that. Yeah, and, it, it's, it, and that's, that's, the, that, that, that's often brought up. And it's, it's an arguable point. Mm -hmm. It's just wrong. And, and, <laughs> and you can look at it without denying that 12.5% yeah, tax is lower than, uh, than the corporate tax rate in most other e European Union countries. But... We need Irish people to run these corporations. If you look at, um, you know, the normal tax dodge that you'd see in a you'd see in a um, in a country that was providing no substantive benefit, mm -hmm. you would find you know sort of what's called a brass plate transaction, where the only thing that changed for the corporation was the address for tax purposes. Mm -hmm. They would just put up a brass mm -hmm. plate on the wall and say, "This is X Y Z Corporation, resident in pick pick an island somewhere." <laughs> In Ireland, it, it, that isn't the way it works. Um, almost all of the major American corporations that are that are resident in Ireland are run by Irish people. Mm -hmm. We want 
their understanding of Europe combined with their affection and understanding of America to run our businesses in that country. Mm -hmm. So if, uh, if you went through the whole list of the 700 American corporations who are doing well in Ireland, you'll find that most of them are being run by Irish people, hiring Irish people, and working to promote us in the European Union. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What are some of the biggest ones? So the, the biggest are uh, the whole top tier of, uh, of our tech industry, mm -hmm. Apple, mm -hmm. uh, Microsoft, Salesforce.com, um, all have Facebook, um, all have headquarters uh, in Ireland, mm -hmm. and, all, and all use that as their jumping off point for the mm. EU. Okay. So just to kind of switch gears a little bit. Okay. So Ireland finds itself in the center of the Brexit debate. Amen. Mm -hmm. Why is the border so important? And like, what is at stake here when we're talking about the Brexit debate? So if you go back, so the, the, in June of 2016, mm -hmm. the residents of the European, I'm sorry, the residents of the United Kingdom, so that's Britain, Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland, had a referendum as to whether they should stay in or leave the European Union. Um, the vote was very narrow, uh, but it was to leave the European Union. So sometimes you'll see people referred to as leavers or remainers, and those mm -hmm. are, the, uh, the, those are the, the teams that are playing the game. Um, inter interestingly, not to get too far into the weeds, the people in Northern Ireland voted to stay stay in the European Union, mm -hmm. the people in Scotland voted to stay in the European Union, and the people in Britain voted to leave the European Union. And you can break it down by age and almost rural, urban. But um, so that, that they voted to leave. A huge, huge um, transformational uh, change here. The, uh, the Prime Minister of Ireland, a gentleman by the name of Enda Kenny, um, of the Fine Fáil party uh, went to visit the other 26 countries of the European Union and convinced them that the biggest issue facing the European Union at, with Britain exiting, with the UK exiting, excuse me, was the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Mm -hmm. And um, the setup for this is that um, Ireland at one time the whole island was one country. It was owned by the British, but as the British left uh, and Ireland got its own independence, there was a, uh, an agreement that the a few of the counties in the north, which were mostly Protestant, would would remain the would remain within the would remain within the United Kingdom, and the counties in the south, primarily Catholic, would be independent. Mm -hmm. um, that relationship was had some strife in it and eventually it broke out into physical violence um, and for about and for about you know 30 years there was a situation which the Irish referred to as the troubles and the troubles were essentially a, a terrorist war between the Catholic have-nots and the Protestant haves of uh, in Northern Ireland and that process was um, you know, obviously disruptive of of life in Northern Ireland and in the Republic and in the and in Great Britain itself, because the terrorists uh, actually 
went there also. Um, eventually that conflict uh, subsided greatly with the help uh, of the United States. Um, the United uh, President uh, Bill Clinton, uh, Senator George Mitchell, um, were key members uh, of, a, of a group that brought the North uh, and the Republic and the United Kingdom together to um, sign a peace accord. And it was signed, the, the peace agreement was reached and signed on Good Friday. It's referred to now as the Good Friday Agreements in 1998. And that agreement has resulted in peace between the North and the South. Not that there isn't, not that there isn't tension, there still mm -hmm. is tension, uh, but the violence has subsided. Um, and what the Irish fear, both on both sides of the border, the Irish in the North and the Irish in the, in the South, fear that by putting a hard border between the North and the South again, um, that conflict will flare up. I should back up a second and say, after the Good Friday Agreements, trade between the in, trade between the North of Ireland and the Republic of Ireland began and increased. Uh, you can today you can drive from Dublin to Belfast in two hours, mm -hmm. and you won't really know you've crossed a border. Mm -hmm. um, there is there are no border checks. There are no there are no stoppages because both countries are in the European Union. Mm -hmm. So there, there's no reason for that. And so it turns out that what's happened now is that people from the North, uh, many of them work in the Republic, many people in the Republic work in the North. Uh, commerce goes back and forth freely without any kind of restrictions. And you know things, and I don't remember the precise details of this, but, but to take an example that, that, that many of us will know, uh, a drink called Bailey's Irish Cream mm -hmm. um, it comes from it comes from Ireland, and, and I forget exactly how this happens. I forget the order, but I, the the milk is raised in the Republic and it's pasteurized in the North and bottled in the South, and then infused in the North and shipped mm -hmm. out from oh, the wow. South. It just goes back and forth, and I, I don't remember exactly, uh -huh. how, but that's typical now of how things work because there is, mm -hmm. there are no restrictions. Mm -hmm. But once and that's because both countries, both the Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, are in the European Union. Once the European Union, once Britain leaves the European Union, then there, that, that doesn't exist any longer, mm -hmm. and there should, in normal circumstances, be a border uh, between uh, between uh, Great Britain, between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, and that's what people are. And that's mm -hmm. the holdup. With this, with the Brexit right now, the parties have a difficult time coming to an agreement. How can we maintain peace between the North and the Republic, and at the same time respect the fact that the European Union, that Great Britain wants to leave the European Union? So, what was the, I guess, proposal that Boris Johnson had? So he's had, some, you know, this is a long history of sort of uh, difficult proposals, which yeah. which have never and probably won't be accepted. Mm -hmm. the, the 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 UK has drawn. I'm sorry, the the uh, the EU has drawn a pretty firm red line here. A compromise which would be acceptable to Ireland and to the European Union was uh, to 
enter into a legal fiction. And that fiction was that the border between Ireland and the European Union would be considered to be some imaginary line drawn in the Irish Sea. <laughs> the, the water that separates uh-huh. the island of Ireland from the island of Great Britain. Okay. So with that compromise, the, the travel and trade which now exists peacefully between the North and the Republic mm-hmm. could continue. But once the goods left the island of Ireland, say from Belfast to Manchester and England, sure. and then they crossed this line in the Irish Sea, which would be the pretend border, then the customs duties and the inspections and all that mm-hmm. that would normally be required by coming into leaving the European Union and going into the United Kingdom and back and forth would become due and owing. Mm-hmm. And everyone was satisfied with that except the people who live in Northern Ireland I was gonna say, yeah. who feel that this was the beginning of the end for them, mm-hmm. that sooner or later um, that sooner or later it would just happen that there would be no distinction between the North, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, mm-hmm. and the, there would be just one government right. sooner or later. I guess if we ask <laughs> any more on that, we're gonna get. I have some more questions, but I feel like we'll we'll get right into the weeds. <laughs> well, it's a it's a, a complicated story. I mean, yeah. there's obvi- like all like all border disputes, it's like ninety eight percent history, mm-hmm. and and people want to have a solution. Um, We've gotten to the point in Ireland and in in Northern Ireland where where there is peace, where there is there is some economic prosperity. Clearly, in the Republic, the Republic of Ireland is doing great. Mm-hmm. Uh, Northern Ireland is lagging far, 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 far behind, right. but it's doing better. Mm-hmm. And once it's once it's cut off from the Republic of Ireland, and, I think it'd be hard to see how that would be good for them. Right. Mm-hmm. That's, that was going to be my question. It kind and of interestingly, seems like... you've got the fact that they voted to stay, to right. remain within yeah. the, in mm-hmm. the European Union, and mm-hmm. also by narrow margin, uh, but, but nonetheless, the majority voted to stay. Sure. But they're going to leave. Yeah, that's tough. When people wonder why can't, why can't these people come to an agreement on this, mm-hmm. this is why. Yeah, yeah. They no, can't. And, absolutely. And it's, and, it's, and it's based, a lot, I mean, the, the discrimination between Catholics and Protestants over jobs, for example, doesn't exist the way it did before. Um, the great jobs that the Protestants in the old days wouldn't allow the Catholics to have have all gone. They were essentially in the shipbuilding industry, and, and they've gone. Um, the Catholics have done have done very very well in in uh, Northern Ireland under the under the Good Friday Agreements. And um, Catholics uh, tend to procreate faster than Protestants, and there'll be more <laughs> Catholics in Northern Ireland before long. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it, it's all it's within that milieu that this this issue arose, and I mean it was it's a controversial issue anyway. It was from a clearly deeply divided United Kingdom on their vote. People are looking at a way of whether or not. You know, did the Russians influence this no. to, 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 there was so much disinformation. It clearly is in, and I, I don't know, I do not know the answer to that, but clearly it, one of the beneficiaries of having a weakened European Union 
which has existed on the continent and in the UK um, for all these years, has been peace mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and organization and the increase in prosperity. And the dis- the, if the European Union becomes disassembled, um, you know, that is something that would, would be uh, advantageous mostly to the Russians. Mm-hmm. So, again, switching gears, <laughs> given your role here at SLU Law, how would you advise both undergrad and law students to prepare while they're in school for going into this type of work in international relations, diplomacy, legal affairs, whatever it might be that they're interested in? What would you advise them to do while in school? Wow. So um, I would say two things. I better think about this for a second before I don't, I don't want to get myself into trouble here. I would say two <laughs> things. No, I'm comfortable with it. I'll say two things. One, study hard. Um, okay, nothing, nothing revolutionary in that. <laughs> Second, keep your eyes open. Um, there are so many opportunities available for someone who is a good lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 now I graduated 150 years ago, and the, and the <laughs> world was the world was much different then. But once once I had my my degree, my law degree, um, I was on the playing field, and it didn't make any difference what my dad did or my what my mom did or what my grandfather did. I mean, I was in the game, and then uh, it was only limited by w- what. I was willing to put into it and what I was willing and the opportunities I was willing to see. And um, the opportunities are just mind boggling. If someone would have told me when I graduated in 1973 that I would have a chance to try cases all across the United States or all across the western part of the United mm-hmm. States and including including Missouri, um, that I would have ch- had a chance to have written some books on the legal process. And certainly if someone would have told me that I was going to be the United States ambassador to Ireland, um, I, I don't think, I, I don't think I would have believed any uh-huh. of it. <laughs> and all of that is, all of that is available to everybody who graduates and who gets onto the field. And mm-hmm. it's just a matter of, you know, how, how far you're willing to, how much you're willing to put into it and how much opportunity you see out there. Um, opportunity doesn't always come knocking. Um, I think you have to go find it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but armed with a law degree, I found that, that um, the, uh, the opportunities were so vast um, and um, it, it, gave, it gave me an opportunity to explore things I would have never, ever, ever, ever thought were possible. Mm-hmm. So I think I, I, I'm go back. I'm comfortable with my answer. <laughs> Study hard because obviously that's that's key. But but keep your eye open for all of the things that are out there that that a, a, a new lawyer can explore and and work on and um, and I, I think succeed on. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. That's great advice. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're heading back to Ireland now this, this week, or when are you going? Uh, next Tuesday. Okay. I think we're. I'm leaving Tuesday morning, and a bunch of uh, faculty and uh, 
um, our alums are, yeah. are coming and we've got um, some really interesting, mm-hmm. I think interesting, I think they're interesting because I set them up, uh, <laughs> interesting speakers uh, who are going to talk about things not touristy. Mm-hmm. Um, we're we're going to have a really wonderful journalist uh, talk to us about the troubles. Mm-hmm. Um, she was raised in Northern Ireland and now lives in the Republic and she's, she lived through it. Mm-hmm. And she's going to talk about what it was like uh, in those days when people were bombing one another and That's killing so crazy, one another. I think. Um, you know, civilized, mm-hmm. educated people were engaging in these, you know, really terrorist activities. Uh, we're going to have someone talk about Brexit. One of the one of the premier barristers in Ireland is going to mm-hmm. address these issues in probably more detail than we went through today. <laughs> and then you uh, could spend hours on that. Hours mm-hmm. you, you could, and, mm-hmm. and he he will do a very good job of it. Mm-hmm. And then I asked the former prime minister of Ireland, who was the, the gentleman who was the prime minister during my tenure, Enda Kenny, um, to talk to us about his experiences as being uh, the prime minister of Ireland. Uh, working uh, with the European Union in the Brexit issue and uh, his relationship uh, and love for the United States. That's great. That'll be yeah, really interesting. That's fascinating. Uh-huh. Well, thank you for coming in and safe travels. My pleasure. Uh, or as they say, Slancha. Yeah, cheers. You can say Slancha. I think we just have water, but Slancha will <laughs> Enjoy all the Guinness for us, right? My pleasure. Thank you for joining us for Slew Law Summations. Produced by St. Louis University School of Law. 